doing this talking with me. You see, they do this talking with me. My son Jason says, but Dad, I think you're crazy. I said, Jason, that's what keeps me sane. I was born with a strange sense of humor to go with a strong sense of pain. And I found that there's nothing too serious that it can't hold its own in a joke. So I may smile at stories about people suffering and laugh about losing my hat and make people think I give talks without answers because I tease them and hide where they're at. But I also like things that are simple. And a smile is the last thing you'll see on the face of this crazy old outlaw, and I'm laughing out loud because I'm me. I laugh like this because I'm free. And Mama says, but Tommy, do you love Jesus? And I said, Mother, doesn't it show? She said, I've been listening to you for an hour, and frankly, i got to say no. <laughs> because if you did, you'd be famous. Big concerts and Christian TV. You'd be so well known that you'd never get lonely. You'd never be crazy or weird. But you've got to give up making talks without answers, and you ought to shave off that old beard. I said, well, I love you too, Mother. But you sure found it different than me. You see, I do my best, and I do it like Jesus, because he did it live and for free. Thank you. been the means through which spiritual truth is transmitted. There's never been another way. The carpenter told parables. Those are little stories. We have mythology. We have legends. We have fairy tales. Spiritual truth has always been transmitted through storytelling. Isn't it ironic that a bunch of drunks accidentally happened upon the manner in which spiritual truth is transmitted. We tell our stories. I think that's beautiful. And, of course, if that bunch of drugs had known that, they'd have screwed it up. Because <laughs> they're like me. And I'm an alcoholic. I said that. Which means I have always been an idealist, a perfectionist, a hypersensitive, romantic dreamer who has never been satisfied with life, self, and others. I have always wanted something more. I have always longed for something more. And in retrospect, I know that this longing for something more is what spirituality is all about. Spirituality is, in a very simple way, the longing for something more. And I didn't know for a long time that the more for which I was longing was the more for which every human being is longing, really. And it's a longing to connect and relate to and love and be loved by a power greater than myself. I didn't know that. I accidentally discovered that in the program. And I found that the main vehicle of this love from this higher power is people like you and people like me. 
A bunch of spiritual mongrels, Herb. Bunch of spiritual mongrels, you know, that's what Tom P. used to say, and that's that's what I am, a spiritual mongrel, you know. And I want to talk to you about these things, I really do. Uh, somebody asked me last night if I was nervous, and I said no. And they said, well, what are you doing in the women's bathroom? And I said, what does it look like I'm doing? <laughs> well, I want you to know that's not my purse. <laughs> See, this is serious business to me, y'all. And that's the reason I laugh so much. I really believe that until I can laugh heartily at me, I'm not taking me nearly seriously enough. Laughter's a beautiful thing. For so long, the only laughing I did was real cynical laughter at somebody. Usually when they fell down and hurt themselves. Because <laughs> you know? just for the moment when they fell and hurt themselves, I could feel a little superior. <laughs> which is another of my problems. When I say I'm an alcoholic, I mean a lot of things. I'm the kind of person who's always believed if anything feels good, I should do it to excess. <laughs> if it feels good, overdo it. That was my creed. So I've had problems with things that feel good. You know, eating, sleeping, gambling. I remember when I found out sex felt good. And I was by myself, just like y'all were. And it was wonderful. <laughs> and in spite of warnings from my mother about a certain part of my anatomy rotting off and going blind, I figured with my wonderful alcoholic mind, I'll do it till I'm nearsighted. <laughs> it was my first success in life. And then I found out it felt good with somebody else. <laughs> and that part is none of your damn business. <laughs> James Taylor sings a song that fish in the ocean, you know, something in the sea, I let a red-headed woman make a fool out of me. I could give you a nine-hour talk on me and redheads with freckles all over their bodies. But you'll never hear it. Only my sponsors heard that one, and he didn't believe it. <laughs> Always attracted these women that are called borderline. <laughs> Either want to kill you or love you to death, you know. And I thought something was wrong with them. <laughs> it was a great awakening to me. You know, my sponsor said, what's your part in this? I said, you mean I had one? <laughs> so if it feels good, do it to excess. That's the reason I'm sober. Hell, being sober feels good. If it didn't feel good, I wouldn't be sober. And I can't get enough of it. So you can't run me away from here with a stick. 
Now, Radiant might take me out of here. I don't know. <laughs> I'm an alcoholic. I like to do everything at once and do it all perfect. I know many of y'all have that problem. Yeah. So I get in off the road sometimes. I travel and have a stack of letters and stack of phone calls. And I start answering the letters and calling on the phone at the same time. That'll make you nervous. You ever notice that? Everything at once and do it all perfect. You ever try to pee and comb your head at the same time? <laughs> now, women may be able to do that. I, you know, I, I, I am checking out. But when you're six foot three, you ain't going to do it. And then I'll see the newspaper, and there's a good article in it, so I'm reading and peeing and combing my hair. I'm a mess in the bathroom. Now, psychiatrists would look at that and say, he has obsessive compulsive disorder. Damn, that's important, ain't it? I call it the Tasmanian Devil Syndrome. Y'all remember Taz on the Bugs Bunny show? Running through trees, man. He'd run through all them trees, and he'd stop for a minute and go, go find him another tree. Now, Taz was longing for something, too, wasn't he? And it sure wasn't that woman, Tasmanian Devil. She's uglier than he was. But I've always been that way. Kind of busy. You know, frenzied. And I suspect to some degree I always shall be. I always shall be. The difference is how I react to these things. And I've learned that in the program. Now, I could go to a shrink and you'd give me some anaphronil. And I wouldn't bounce off the walls. But my bowels wouldn't work either. So I have a choice between not being nervous and not taking a crap. Excuse me, y'all, but you know, I'd rather be nervous. They could give me some Xanax and all that good stuff, you know. <laughs> and I'd be wasted again. And I wasted most of my life anyway. And I don't want it. So I choose to be a Tasmanian Devil Syndrome person, okay, who loves things that feel good, and who has always been a great starter and a poor finisher. Any of y'all have that problem? That doesn't sound like much. A lot of people don't get sober and stay sober because they go into it like I did, full throttle, while the pain's driving them in. And when the pain disappears, they put it on stop, and out they go again. Great starter, poor finish, poor finisher. Everything I ever did in my life, you know, I did full speed ahead. Let's get in there, let's get on with it, let's get it over with, and let's go on to what's next. Because there's got to be something better than this. There's got to be more. And so every aspect of my personality, every aspect of my character, has always set solidly on the foundation of my needing something more. I want to make that point. And for a while, that created what the big book calls the spiritual malady in me. And ironically, today, it is the vehicle which I am riding to health and wholeness and wellness 
and companionship with God. Nothing's been added. One man said one time, which of you by taking thought can add one cubit to your stature? Same stature. Different person. Show me a program that matches that. This is, and we are in, the finest and most effective recovery program on the face of God's earth. Nothing can touch it. I scare me sometimes because I'm not grateful enough for that. I have what I've always been looking for, and I'm very close to it all the time, but I'm wanting more and more and more. And that more is not a thing. And that more is not material stuff. That more is the Almighty. Now, all of my life I was afraid. I didn't know what I was afraid of. And all of my life I was angry. And I didn't know what I was angry about. And almost all of my life I felt like a nothing, a nobody. All empty inside. And I look back on my life and I had a lot of reasons to feel like a nobody. For instance, I was the ugliest baby you ever saw. People say, how do you know that? I say, my mama told me. My mother told me she'd never seen an ugly baby until I was born. She wouldn't take me out of the house for six weeks. I was on the face of the earth. She didn't want anybody to see me. It's almost like mama said, son, you put the you in ugly. And I told a psychiatrist about that one time. Really got his attention. He said, ooh. That must have been traumatic for you. I said, no, sir, I've seen my baby pictures. Mother was right. How's ugly. And as I grew up, things didn't change much. I was one of the skinniest kids you ever saw in your life. You know? I was one of those little boys when he turned sideways, your shoulder blades stick out and it looks like a tricycle. Just jump on and ride, you know. And I'd try to compensate by bending my shoulders around and then my chest would disappear. And Mama made me wear knickers. Brown corduroy knickers. And the knicker hole was that big and my leg was that big. And it's always falling down. I spent half my childhood pulling up them damn brown corduroy knickers. And I hated them. And I swished every step I took. And that wasn't enough. I had freckles. Now, I love freckles on other people. And I had so many freckles. I had freckles where freckles have never been reported before. Somebody asked me one time, do you have them there? I said, yeah, I had them there. Do you? And I always wanted to be a man, you know. Macho. My mother had four brothers, you know, Glenn and Cedric and Lloyd and Durwood. And Durwood they called Dud. And Dud was a motorcycle cop in the days when they wore riding breeches and leather spats up to their knees, you know. And he, and he had a, a harness going across here, a leather harness with bullets in it, silver bullets, man. 
a pearl handle thirty-eight sitting high on his hip. Man squeaked when he walked. You know what I mean? Smelled like gunpowder and shaving lotion. Now that's macho. You understand what I mean? Man, you smell like gunpowder and shaving lotion and squeak when you walk. Damn, you ain't something. And the only time I wasn't afraid was when I was behind Dud on his motorcycle. When I was all hugged up to Dud, I was fine, thank you. And I wanted to be like him. In addition to being ugly, freckled, and skinny, I had this great shock of snow white hair. You know what my macho uncles call me? Pudding head. Now, last time I checked, Puddinghead is not in the list of macho names. You understand what this is? Yeah, I didn't like me. I didn't like the way I look. I didn't like what I was. And those two dislikes held on for years. And sometimes even today, they rear their head. They do. Don't be surprised if they do. This is what we call character defects. I used to figure if I can get rid of these freckles, <laughs> everything would be okay. And along about the age of 12 or 13, is replaced with the ugliest set of pimples you ever saw in your life. <laughs> Even my pimples weren't like anybody else's. Other kids got little old zits, you know. Pop them out. I had cysts. Balls. What they call down in North Carolina, risings. I have cysts and balls and risings where nobody ain't ever had them before either. I'll tell you that. Y'all ever had a ball on the sole of your foot? And you know, Mom and Daddy always told me if I did certain things, I'd have pimples on my face. And I'd walk down the street like I had a neon sign, man. Say, he's doing it, he's doing it, he's doing it. <laughs> My daddy was a handsome man with coal black hair. Sweetest man that ever walked the face of this earth. No argument there. Nicest, gentlest, kindest human being I've ever known in my life. My mother had dark hair. My sister had dark hair. And in the middle of all this is pudding head. <laughs> None of them had freckles. None of them had pimples. And cysts and balls and risings. And then I'm more knickers. And I felt different. And I felt like I didn't belong. And I began to develop this sense of being outside of, apart from, separate, different. And that one hangs on. I was a loner, but I couldn't stand being alone. And yet I could be in a crowd of 500 people, and I was alone. And it wasn't a chosen aloneness. I was just outside. And didn't know why. And God, I wanted in. So I started playing the games. I didn't care for me at all. As a matter of fact, as I later became aware, I hated my guts. 
And by the way, I've never met an alcoholic yet who at some level didn't. So I started playing the games to get the approval I couldn't give myself and get the acceptance I couldn't give myself. I started excelling at everything I did. The perfect straight-A student in school. When I got the report card, I'd take it home and I'd show it to my mom, who's a black belt Southern Baptist. And she'd go over the A's and say, what is this C on conduct? I was still a little boy. I still threw spitballs. And I always felt like part of the deal in life was, was for God's sake, get your mama's love and acceptance. You've got to have it. you got it from your father. It's a given. But she won't give it, and you've got to give it. Made straight A's in school. In the Baptist church where we went every time the door opened. Any Baptist in here? Raise your hands. Raise your hands. I want the people to see the sicker ones. In the Baptist church, they have a group for boys called the Royal Ambassadors for Christ. The highest rank in it was Ambassador Plenipotentiary. I couldn't even pronounce that word. But I was one quicker than anybody ever got to be one before. I was the youngest Ambassador Plenipotentiary in the state of North Carolina, probably in the whole country. And they say, all said, ooh, isn't he something? Recite me another memory verse, Tom. Come on, Putin, recite another one. And you know what I'm saying? That's done, and that ain't it. What's next? This is not it. This is not the more that I'm looking for. And so I kept playing other games and wearing masks. I wore masks to the point, whatever you wanted me to be, I'd be. Whatever you wanted me to say, I'd say. What you wanted me to agree with, whether I agree with it or not, I agree with you. Just please, God, don't shut me out. And I wore so many masks, I didn't know who I was. One roll here, another roll there, another roll there, another mask here, another mask there. I got lost. All that I knew was that I was a nothing, and a nobody, and a failure, and I was ugly. I didn't have a horrible childhood in spite of all this. I had some warm and wonderful times when I was a child. I had some good friends when I was a child. Who had that amazing gift that children have to accept me just like I was. They didn't notice the freckles. They didn't notice the pimples. They didn't notice the white hair. They didn't notice those knickers falling down. They just loved me. Never found that love again until I came in this fellowship. And when you tried to give it to me then, it was nice for you to say you love me, but I'm sorry, I can't believe that. You just don't know me. And if you did, you'd see my knickers falling down. I used to sit up in the Cheney Ball tree. Chinaberry tree, you probably call them up here. We call them Cheney Ball tree down in North Carolina. When I wasn't throwing those balls at my sister... 
I kind of reflect. And I'd lay back on that limb in the chain ball tree and I'd say, you know, I love my daddy and I love my friend Bill and my friend John Q and my babysitter. She was a redhead. And I love my mama. And things are pretty good. But something's missing. And I don't know what it is. And I don't know where to look for it. And I don't know how to find it. But I do know if I ever find it, man, everything's going to be okay. Now, I know today I was in some good company when I was doing that reflecting, you know. Catholics have a saint, St. Augustine. I don't know if he sat in a Cheney ball tree or not, but he, he, he was longing for something, thirsting for something, just like I was. Because he said, you know, you've made us for yourself, dear Lord, and our souls are restless till they rest in you. And that great psychiatrist, Carl Jung, who had so much to do with the beginnings of this program, talked about a secret unrest that gnaws at the roots of our being. Along comes Dr. William D. Silkworth and describes people like me as being restless irritable, and discontented. That's something. Psalmist talked about it. As the deer pants after those clear streams of water, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. See, these guys knew what they were looking for. I didn't. I didn't yet know what it was. Even in music, you know, country and western music, they talk about this longing. Do y'all know a song by Mel Tillis called Detroit City? It's a classic. Home folks think I'm big in Detroit City. From the letters that I write, they think I'm fine. By day, I make the cars. At night, I make the bars. If only they could read between the lines. I want to go home. I want to go home. Lord, how I want to go home. I did. I did. I'm 15 years old. I was on a high school singing trip up in Greensboro, North Carolina, with a bunch of older boys. Really experienced boys. I mean, hell, they were 17, 18 years old. And like so many alcoholics, I always ran around with older people. Maybe that was another mask. I went in a hotel room, and they called a cab driver, and when he came, they gave him seven dollars and a half, and he came back a while later, and he had a bottle of brown liquid in his hand, and said, Cream of Kentucky on the label. I'll never forget that. I'll never forget that. And I asked my friend, my friend, do y'all give nicknames to your friends up here? I was with Ducky and Boots and Junk and Egghead. <laughs> and Egghead was the wisest in the bunch. That wasn't why we called him Egghead, because his wives called him Egghead, because his head looked like an egg. I said, Egghead, what do we do with this stuff? He says, you drink a water glass of it as fast as you can. You drink a glass of water, then you do it again. I said, Egghead, what do we do with this stuff? He says, you drink a water glass of it as fast as you can. You drink a glass of water, then you do it again. Man, I'm in front of the bathroom mirror and watch myself take my first drink. I can picture that. And man, it was like a warm shower came down all around me. And arms came around me and kind of squeezed up on me. I said, uh-oh, this is it. 
This is what I've been looking for in the Cheney Ball tree. Man, I am home. I'm never going to be without this stuff again. Any of you remember the feeling? It kind of hooks you, doesn't it? God, it was fantastic. And i got to point this out. It was a spiritual feeling. That's what it was. I loved it, man. My friends got drunk, puked, passed out. I called a cab driver. <laughs> I got me another pint of Cleveland, Kentucky. I thought that's the only kind they made. I didn't care, you know. And I drank that. And I blacked out. Didn't pass out. Didn't throw up. I blacked out. You lay in jail, Raleigh, North Carolina, where my daddy was a lifetime deacon in the Baptist church and my mother was the church hostess. I made the social pages quite often. By the time I was 23, I'd had over a thousand stitches taken in my face alone as a result of drinking. It sounds alcoholic. I was allergic to alcohol. Every time I put alcohol into my body, my body demanded more alcohol. That's a compulsion. What Barney Fife called a compulsion. I had one of them compulsions. Every time I drank, my body would send me a message, get some more. Get some more and get it now. Wasn't a mental thing. It's what Silkworth said it was. These people cannot take alcohol into their bodies without developing the phenomenon of craving. They were dead right. At least as far as I'm concerned. For me. I couldn't tell you how much I was going to drink when I started drinking. And I had an obsession of the mind. I preoccupied with that stuff. The taste? No. I wanted to recapture that experience that I'd had in that hotel room in Greensboro, North Carolina. I wanted it again. And I tried with all my might for the next 15 years to recapture it, and I never did. Did you? Man, I thought I was home. I was on a detour. Alcohol fools. Alcohol created the illusion for me that all was well when all wasn't well. And if illusions would last, I'd have been okay. Trouble with illusions is, you know, they come and go. You usually puke up most of your illusions. I went to Alcoholics Anonymous when I was 23. Wasn't that nice of me? I was in trouble. And I went in there and, by the way, I'm an intellectual. I forgot to tell you that. Dangerous one. Studied theology and philosophy. And had a 3.94 average in college. Double majors in history and philosophy. Minors in religion and Greek and English. Studying for the ministry. That made me double dangerous. 
And I fall in this AA meeting and they got a plaque over here with 12 steps on it and one over here with 12 traditions on it. The guy standing up front had books. The great mind went to work. All you got to do is memorize what's on this plaque over here and this plaque over here. Memorize what's in that book. And they'll put you up front and they'll listen to you. Why, you ought to be president of AA in six months. Full throttle, man, you know. See, I like to be in control. Y'all don't like to be in control, do you? Hell, if we pull the bus of life into this room today, every damn one of you go for the steering wheel. And I'm not leaving Alanons out. The book says it. Most people like to live by self-propulsion. Each person's like an actor who wants to run the whole show. That is my overriding, number one, foundation stone defect of character. I want to be in control, and I wanted control of Alcoholics Anonymous, because when I was in control, momentarily, I felt comfort. And if I wasn't, I scared to death and angry at the one who had control. I know you all never felt that way. the hell they listening to David Aronofsky for when they listen to me, I say. What the hell they listening to Bill Wilson for? I write better than he can. Well, they're also arrogant, have you noticed? <laughs> Memorizing stuff. Duck soup, man. I have partial photographic memory. Always have. Made me a real good test taker when I was going through the university. I didn't learn a damn thing, but I could take a test. So I memorized 12 steps, 12 steps, and what's in the book. I can quote great portions of this book to you. I do not have to anymore. I don't have to. I finally learned it's not the letter that matters, it's the spirit. It's not the intellectual ability to quote what is in the material. It is the spiritual humility to act on what says that. People put me up front and listen to me. I knew everything there was to know about the program intellectually, I suspect, and for the next seven years, the longest I ever stayed dry was 89 days. The intellectuals out there him? <laughs> and I met some hateful people on Alcoholics Anonymous. They're ugly. And they call them old-timers. Suckers had x-ray vision. <laughs> I went to this one group up in Burlington, North Carolina, while I was excelling out of the college. They were so traditional, everybody had their own seat. Now, you go to Burlington, North Carolina tonight, I can tell you where everybody be sitting. Barney be leaned up against the wall. Jim S. will be on the first row, second chair. Fourth row back, fourth chair over is where Martha sat. She'd been dead 23 years. <laughs> you go to sit in that chair, they say, that's Martha's seat. 
Over on the right-hand side, second row, second chair from the wall, sat the meanest man God ever put on the face of this earth. His name was Bill C. I called him Grumpy. I hated his guts. Man was dumb and ugly. I'd come in the meeting, he'd point his finger at me. Said, how you doing, boy? He wasn't supposed to know that. I'd give him a standard alky answer. Fine. And he'd mutter profanities. And back me into the corner with that finger, and he'd tell me how I was doing. That scared me. And the man was stupid talking in circles. Say, boy, you can't think your way into good living. You gotta live your way into good thinking. I say, you dumb old bastard, shut up. <laughs> but I never said it out loud to him because I was scared of it. <laughs> he say, boy, how come you always run around looking for God? He ain't lost. <laughs> that kind of stuff will tick you off if you're an intellectual, you know. Grumpy tried to help me. He took on a formidable task. So I always called for help when it was too late. Y'all do that. You're out of booze, the test pattern goes out on TV. You say, well, shit, I need some help. <laughs> I called Grumpy one night, I drunk. He said, boy, don't you ever call me again drunk. He said, as a matter of fact, don't ever call me again. <laughs> he said, if you want to get sober, you know where we meet. And don't call me to come get you. You can walk. And he said, as far as I'm concerned, I don't care if you ever get sober. Now, I done told you I'm sensitive. <laughs> That hurt me. This is me you're treating like that. Sounds funny, it wasn't. I was insane. I was going straight for God. I didn't want anything to do with people. I didn't like them, I didn't trust them, and they hurt me. So I was on a God hunt. And so I take the steps and I went on my God hunt. Some people talk about one and twelve. That wasn't hunting God. Eleven was hunting God, man. Prayer and meditation. I got into it heavy. Found out the greatest meditators wore orange bathrobes and shaved all the hair off their head. And folded up their legs kind of funny, you know, and chanted. I looked all over the place for an orange bathrobe. And I couldn't find one. And I'm much too vain to shave the hair off my head. And by that time, I'd busted up my legs so much driving cars drunk, I could get into Lotus position, but I couldn't get out of it. <laughs> but that's the way they did it. Now, the meditation they did didn't impress me. What impressed me was what they could do. These suckers lay on a bed of nails, man. They could walk across fire. 
See, it wasn't the meditation that mattered to me. Do you understand? I wanted people to say, look at Tom. Man, he's walking cross by. Ain't he nothing? Instead of, boy, don't you ever call me again. I sat out there and chanted for, for weeks, man. I'm serious. That's, that's what I'm talking about. I was crazy, man, because I'm serious. I, I'm a Baptist. I know what a spiritual experience is. Hell, he lit up a bush for Moses. Knocked Saul off a jackass. I'm, I'm looking at the lightning bolts here, boy. I mean, God, this is time you're dealing with. When I call, you answer. On my terms. Thank God for his sense of humor. I see him saying to Peter, there he is again. <laughs> Tell me, Peter, what does on mean? <laughs> Got plenty of lightning bolts. Send him one. But he wouldn't like the color. God laughs. And God cries. And I'm sure when he looked at me, he did both. I'm sure also when he looked at you, he did both. I went on until I was 30 years old. And I came to the most blessed the most sorrowful and painful place I ever came to in my life. I hit bottom. I came too. And I realized, Tom, you can't drink. I'd known that for a long time. But I realized too, I couldn't quit. And I think for the first time I realized, not intellectually, but in my heart and soul, what powerlessness really meant. I couldn't drink and I couldn't quit drinking. That's the description of the alcoholic in the book Alcoholics Anonymous that I had memorized. If when you honestly want to quit entirely, you find you cannot, or if when drinking you have little control over the amount you take, you're probably alcoholic. I knew it and I had missed it. Couldn't drink, couldn't quit, and I was going to die. I'm on five years probation. I have a two-year active sentence on the chain gang waiting for me. I didn't have a driver's license and was never supposed to have one again. And I made a profit out of Grumpy. I walked back to A. But I had something new. I had what I had to have. I had absolute, total desperation. If it had been up to my mind, I'd never come back. This thing's too good at lying. Just like James Taylor says in one of his songs, I guess my feet know where they want me to go. And I mean that, y'all. My feet brought me back here. With the attitude of, point me. Tell me. Please love me. I need it so much. And it is.
They found out I was walking. I never walked again. The first two years I was sober, I didn't have a driver's license. I went to a meeting every night, sometimes twice a day. I got six, seven, ten phone calls a day from people in the group saying, we love you, man. You want to go to a meeting tonight? I thought to myself, it's nice that they say they love me. I wish I could believe that. And I'd say, yeah, I want to go to a meeting. And I went. My sponsor cleared me up on meetings after I got him. I walked up to him one night and he looked like he had something going for him, you know. I'd go to meetings late and leave early. I was scared. And I was ashamed. You know, they're feeling ashamed. And I was almost convinced that even AA wasn't going to work for me. But I went. And that was the important thing. I went. Last time I saw Grumpy, he was dying of cancer. I walked in his hospital room. I've been sober 18 years. And as I walked in the room, God bless him, he pointed his finger at me and said, Boy, you'll never make it. And I found me a grumpy down there in Charlotte. His name was Harry. And I went up to him one night and I said, I don't want to die. Will you be my sponsor? He said, boy, I've heard about you. They tell me you're not just an alcoholic. They tell me you're crazy. But I will help you, yes, on one condition. And I said, what's that? He said, we will do it my way. I said, yes, sir. Please. I couldn't believe I said that. Please. You ever notice how you pick out a sponsor because he's wonderful and then he gets stupid on you? <laughs> he got stupid immediately. He said, the first thing I want you to do is I want you to come to meetings early and shake everybody's hand and ask them how they're doing. I said, I don't want to come to meetings early. I don't want to shake their hand. I don't care how they're doing. I just don't want to die. And why do I have to do that? And he said, boy, you don't ask me why. You do what I tell you to do. And you see, a lot of people come out of treatment now. They confuse a sponsor with a counselor. They ain't the same. I'm not saying this been prayed. I have a master's degree in counseling. If I were to say to a client, go to meetings early, shake hands, and ask people how they're doing, my next question would be, how does it make you feel? My sponsor didn't care about the feelings. My sponsor said he cared, but it was one time for feelings. He said, you go through the motion, the emotion will follow. You go through the motion, the emotion will follow. Action, 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 effort, result. Damn, I hated hearing that. <laughs> Sponsor's a guide. He is the person who can take you home along this 12-step path. Well, you always want to go. Because he's been there. Not because he's smart. Because he's been there. I started going to meetings, shaking hands, looking at the floor, and mumbling. I didn't miss anybody. I knew my sponsor was watching. And he was. If I missed anybody, he'd embarrass me. So I mumbled after a few weeks, I saw some ankles, <laughs> saw some shins, you know, knees, thighs. I saw some nice hips after a while. <laughs> and finally, I was looking in the eye. 
most fantastic thing in the world. I was glad to see them. I did care how they were doing. And the most magnificent thing, I knew they did too. God! And the shower came all around me. And I knew I was home. This ain't a group to me. This is my family. And I'm home here. That's the only place I've ever been home. I'm staying. Then I started growing. I didn't know I was growing. Start changing. I didn't know I was changing. I was just doing what I was told to do. And I was doing that because I was too desperate not to. That's all. You know? Sponsor take me out on 12-step calls. I went in my first 12-step call. The guy was about to shake off the side of the bed. And I turned to Harry. I said, what do I do and what do I say? He said, you don't know nothing. You don't say nothing. Sit down and shut up. <laughs> in discussion meetings, he smoked Cuban cigars. And when that cigar dropped, I shut up. I'm a natural-born ham, in case you hadn't guessed that already. And people think it's easy to get up and talk in front of groups of people. Let me tell you something. The first time they asked me to read the preamble to the meeting, I got up front and I was shaking so bad and started bawling so hard that my sponsor came up and put his arm around me and said, That's okay, son. The time will come. I couldn't read one line in the book without forgetting it before I got to the next one. And that disturbed me. And he said, Read one line. Hell, read one line. Don't demand of yourself more than you can give. You've done that all your life, man. Be gentle with yourself. That's a new idea. <laughs> For one who lived his entire life as his own worst enemy, that was a novel idea. I don't know about you, I didn't need any enemies. Anybody in the world that treated me as bad as I treated me, I'd have killed them. Every time things got good in my life, I screwed them up. I couldn't stand success. Something in me would say, you're ugly, you're a failure, you're worthless, you're bad, you're evil. You don't deserve this. Screw it up. And I would. And this guy's telling me reading one line. Think on it. I go to meetings, I hear good stuff. Man, you hear good stuff in meetings. I want to remember it. Ten minutes later, it's gone. You know what he told me to do? Me, the intellectual? Get your tablet and pencil, son. Take it to the meeting with you. I got a little black notebook at home. Now I carry meetings with me and I write down stuff, man. And as God is my witness, the first talks I made in this fellowship, I opened my little black notebook and I read what it said. And when I was through, I sat down. They called Grumpy when I'd been sober six months. So it's been sober six months. You know, come down and see him pick up his chip or give it to him, you know? They give him a yellow chip up in North Carolina, a little poker chip. First thing he says, you're a damn lie. Ain't no way that boy could be sober six days, much less six months. And I was sober a year before you know it, man. And I had realized somewhere during that period of time I didn't want to drink anymore. It started happening to me, you know, this transformation. I didn't know how it was happening. I just been. It was nice. My first birthday, my wife and sponsor arguing about who's going to give me a party. People had argued about what they were going to do with me before, but it wasn't to give me a party. 
And I already had my speech made up and rehearsed in my mind, you know, I was going to wow them with that night. That wasn't a fun. When I picked up my ears, Chip, and I bawled like a baby. I couldn't say a word. All that speech, man, was wasted. <laughs> and they kept counting. And they counted up to 25 years. And I had the same anniversary as a man who'd been sober 25 years. Tell me God don't take care of drunks and intellectual fools. And he and I became very close. Had he lived, he'd have been sober 50 years last July. And he was this program. You know what I mean? He didn't say nothing. Man, you walk in and sit down with Wilson, all the troubles in the world, just tearing you apart. You sit down and he'd light that old pipe. Whew. I mean, it's better than 10 hours of meditation and relaxation, man. Just to watch Wilson light his damn pipe. Was he a great man? No, he was a machinist. A former cellist with the Cleveland Symphony Orchestra, a simple, quiet, gentle man, you know? Not an intellectual, not a great religious saint or anything, a spiritual mongrel. God blessed the spiritual mongrels. God blessed the Grumpies and the Harrys and the Wilsons and the Bob Whites and the Chuck C's and the Sandy B's and the David A's. I wouldn't be here without them. They may not be smart, baby, all of them, but they provide a hell of a channel for that power that I was always longing for. Don't forget that. God, don't judge him by his degree. Don't judge her by her amount of intellectual capability. You're liable to miss the person that can take you right up that path. Can you speak the king's English? Who cares? I've been sober a long time. I can't believe it. I, I, I really, you know. People call me an old-timer. And some of them say I'm ugly. Some of them say, I don't want to talk to you. You can see right through me. I love a drunk. I love a drunk. For the time being, this morning, I'm not ugly. I'm not a nobody. Or nothing. I don't hate me right now. That's been a hard character defect. That's been a hard character defect. That runs deep. Real deep. I practiced it for 30 years. It's not going to disappear overnight. By the grace of God, through the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, I have been changed. One spiritual teacher said that the key to change was a renewing of the mind. In our lingo, we call it a spiritual awakening. I don't think the same. I don't feel the same. I don't behave the same. And all that I had to do with it was quit seeking God and remove the barriers so he could find me. What a twist. 
like saying, come on in, come on in, come on in, I need you. But the door's locked. <laughs> you get sick enough, the door flies open. First thing you holler for is God. He closed the door again. I don't understand God, don't comprehend God, am not a theologian, never claimed to be one. But you know, ever so often, when I'm out there loving somebody else, when I'm relating in love to a piece of music or a poem or a person or a dog or a tree, you know what happens? The nicest, warmest shower comes down around me. And I know the secret of life. I like warm showers. I want them. I better get out there and love something or somebody as often as I can. Spiritual's not far out. Spiritual's real, here, now, common sense. Think about it. The spirit in me that knows precisely where to turn in times of need. It's the spirit in me that can see beyond the facade that a person has and love what they really are, even me. You know what I think the deal is in this program? We kind of grow down to become like children again. So help me God. You know, I, it's like the things I rejected as a kid, I reject now. And the things I accepted wholeheartedly as a kid, I accept now. With all the mess stripped away, you know. And it's so nice to be like a child. Spontaneous, you know. Loving, honest. Knowing your limits. Knowing that there's somebody bigger to help you when you get beyond those limits. Those are the things out of which life is made. And I probably talk too long and your butts are getting tired. I'd like to close with a song that a friend of mine wrote. It's a dialogue, and I'd like to make it a dialogue between my three children, my mother, and myself, if I can remember the word. My oldest daughter's named Crystal, and Crystal says, Daddy, why aren't you famous? I said, Christy, I think I am. Because all the people you see here today came out here to give me a hand. But their applause isn't what really matters, it's what I can feel from their hearts. And if today I made dreamers of some who had lost them, or made friends with a few who were scared, or if there's one new believer who came here a critic, and I told them that somebody cared, then Christy, I always feel famous, though I'm not seen on TV. I get all the attention my ego can handle doing this live.